Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Alex, my friend, my co-host, my partner in storytelling, I think you'd have to agree that we've had a positively amazing run of guests. And as we talked about last time, a bunch of firsts on our little adventure here. Yeah, 100%, which <laughs> is not your 1000%, 100%, which is the maximum that you can have in percent. So, so just so our listeners are clear, you're one tenth as enthusiastic as I am. Is that right? Uh, your <laughs> hatred for mathematics upsets me. Well, look, I have loved every minute of this so far, and I'm going to love all of our future guests, including listeners. Mike Cole will be joining us live in New York City. Yeah, that's great news. Yeah, and we're going to have some ridiculous surprises at those events, including a guest that may or may not actually exist. Try to figure that one out. We welcome your guesses. Now, that said, I also can't tell you, Alex, how much I've been looking forward to just getting back to basics. Just you and me, a couple great lessons from history stories. But first, I think it might be interesting for our listeners to kind of just pull back the kimono a little bit and share a couple of fun facts. Uh, I think they'll be not surprised that our friendship over the past decade has evolved around a love of travel, history, privacy, technology, and of course, good whiskey, good wine, yeah. and good conversation. Don't pull that kimono back too far, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, as they used to say in Victorian times, no ankle, no ankle. Mm-hmm. One example, listeners, Alex and I have, uh, for example, broken bread or possibly a more liquid form of fermented grain over an actual coffin in old Brussels a few times, right, Alex? True fact. True and, great bar, le circuit, <laughs> true fact. Yeah, so check it out, and hopefully we'll be doing a show from there pretty soon. Yep, sounds good. And Although also- I'm not sure the heavy metal in the background is going to work <laughs> for our vibe. We may ask them to turn it down. So we might have to rent the whole place out so they don't uh, put off their guests with the music we want. Also, I remember uh, we tried to Columbo the mystery of the stolen neckties and uh, using your Columbo skills. Someone still has my tie out there in Geneva. (laughs) I resent it to this day. Well, maybe. Hey, look, if anyone's listening who has the tie, just we'll turn the lights off. Leave it on the desk. No, no blame, no faults. Just give my tie back. Exactly. And I finally remember trying to search out decent bourbon in multiple European capitals back before yeah. American whiskey had much recognition across the pond. Well, it still doesn't. But anyway, get on. <laughs> get on. Well, and speaking as we were of bourbon, Alex, as our listeners know, in addition to sharing a love of history and, and booze, we both enjoy a little friendly competition between our two mm. great countries. And we know that each has its own unique charms and benefits and things available. For example, here in the United States, I still cannot buy a copy of Lessons from History. Although, yes, listeners, this grievous error will be remedied on Father's Day in the United States. And if you join us in New York, we'll probably have copies available and maybe we could even get Alex to sign one. But Father's Day being 196 on the bizarro way that you calculate the calendar or 619. Uh, no, excuse me. I'm sorry. 196 in the way that we calculate the cal- <laughs> calendar. Oh my God. You're going to include that, aren't you? Uh, 196 <laughs> on the way that the rest of the world calculates it and 619 on the way that you guys do. Well, I believe the day of the fathers is June 19th here, just in case Alex left you guys with any confusion. Yeah, which is 619 on this crazy American 
calculation. Well, why do you put the month before the day? Explain <laughs> it to me. It, it, just explain. It's we're going to have an entire episode on that. So it's lost to the mist of history while we're researching it. And right. so, Alex, though, do you know what I can enjoy here that you cannot enjoy? Yes, I do. Our sponsor, yeah. our sponsor, Blue Run. And don't hold it up. It's just torturing me. Now, I, that's just showing off and that you've had a clearly had a couple of belts out of that. thing. OK, and that's, I'm very jealous. OK, th that's fair, Alex. I'm putting the bottle aside. No worries. Oh, thanks for holding the glass up. All right. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, our sponsor, Blue Run, the official bourbon of the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast yeah. uh, is a great bourbon that I haven't even had yet. <laughs> well, you will, I promise you will have it in New York and I promise you All will right. enjoy it. Just a little background on Blue Run, everybody. We're so excited to have them as our very first sponsor on the podcast every year. The San Francisco World Spirits Competition receives over a thousand entries in spirit judging. It's the second oldest competition in the world and the oldest and largest in the United States. And within small batch bourbon, uh, Blue Run has taken many, many top honors there. Probably my favorite review of Blue Run, though, Alex, among the many great mm -hmm. ones you can find out there is this one from the Rob Report. Blue Run Spirits has been around since October 2020, but boy, have they hit the ground running. And here's how they describe a sip of Blue Run based on Hall of Fame uh, bourbon curator Jim Rutledge. They say this, quote, Rutledge is a legend. Imagine owning a pair of Air Jordans personally designed by Michael or Taylor Swift composing a song about your devastating breakup. That is how they describe the experience of Blue Run. Well, now so I'm not sure I want it anymore, but all right. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure I want Taylor Swift describing my breakup, but, uh... <laughs> but I think you get to keep it privately. So anyway, being, oh, I slightly, see. I see. being slightly snobbish as we are, or let's say discerning about our booze, mm. we could not be happier to welcome the first sponsor of the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast, Blue Run Bourbon. Amen. Amen. Do yourselves a favor buy Blue Run today. If you can, it's very much in demand or as soon as you can. And Alex, there'll be a bottle waiting for you in New York on 6 June 2020. Cannot, cannot wait. That's six June or June sixth, the way you six six either way, actually. The way the... <laughs> exactly. D Day, right. as as your country and my would call it. Amen. And speaking of D Day, Alex, today you're gonna enlighten us about both the shortest war and the longest war. And no, we do not mean by that the war Putin thought he would get Ukraine in a day, and now he must be feeling it's the longest war right about now. What is the longest war, Alex? All right, here we go. Longest war, shortest war. Um, the longest war in the history of humanity. Civil wars are primetime opportunities, Brian, uh, for interventions by third parties, well known by gamers, if you yeah. are a Fortnite fan, uh, interventions by third parties into the affairs of a country because other nations seek to extract economic or political benefit from the turmoil that's taking place within the realm concerned. So it was in 1651, during the English Civil War, which led to the longest war in the history of humanity. And I know, Brian, that you've guessed it already, but the longest conflict ever was that which took place between the Dutch and the Scilly Isles. It's obvious, isn't it? Come on. Um, no, I'm serious. The English monarchy had long enjoyed an alliance with the Dutch, 
Uh, so the decision made by the Netherlands to ally themselves with the Roundheads uh, in, in our little uh, local contratom. These were, uh, Alex, the anti-monarchists, am I right? That's correct. Roundheads against the Cavaliers. And the Dutch allied themselves with the Roundheads, that is the Republicans. And that went down very badly with the monarchists who promptly started raiding Dutch shipping, as you would. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, taking up the parliamentary alliance by the Dutch was a smart decision because the royalists were getting beaten. And by 1651, on land, the royalists in my country had been pinned down in Cornwall, which if you think of the UK is way down in the southwest. And at sea, the Royalist Navy had retreated to the Scilly Isles, or if you're trying to avoid that term, the Isles of Scilly. They get very particular about it. And where, where are those, Al? They're off the, off the southwest coast of England and often boast of getting the, uh, the best weather in my country, which is ah. no, great, no great boast. But anyway. <laughs> but probably a good uh, place to attack if you're a Navy. Well, it's actually, well, it depends because it was, that's where our Navy had gone to. And they, that was uh, the, the, the least worst option for them. Fair. And so the Dutch demanded reparations from the Scilly Isles and they surrounded them because uh, the heart, the, the Royals, the Royalist Navy had done great raiding damage to the Dutch. So the, uh, the Dutch demanded reparations from them because uh, you know, they saw an opportunity to get uh, revenue from people who weren't in much of a position to refuse. Mm -hmm. But Lord love their stubbornness, uh, refuse is what the Scilly Islanders did. Thus commenced the entirely bloodless 335-year war between the Kingdom of the Netherlands and the Isles of Scilly. Now, Aaron, uh, Alex, you, you rarely make mistakes. You don't mean 335 days or months. Nope, I mean 335 years. <laughs> the, the Dutch declared war specifically on the Isles of Scilly, since by that point the parliamentarians held most of England. So the Dutch were very clear, we are going to war with the Isles of Scilly, which is where the royalists still are. And they declared that war on the 30th of March, 1651. <laughs> and, and that action was, com was complete with a large and menacing fleet uh, soon espied off the shores of the Scillies. And obviously, in the course of the main conflict concerned, Oliver Cromwell and co. were doing very well against the Royalists right. who, in, in England, who promptly and conclusively lost. So the now parliamentary Scilly Isles were left alone by the encircling Dutch mm. fleet without a shot fly, fired, who left. And it seems, without occurring to anyone, that the cessation of the Scilly Dutch war should be declared. <laughs> Right, so they just pushed off. And in 1985, telescope more than 300 years is my point. Yeah. In 1985, a Salonian uh, with a line in amateur history, who obviously sounds a good egg. Um, this Salonian politely wrote to the Dutch and asked, um, guys, are we still at war? <laughs> uh, and the Dutch embassy replied, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but basically I'm, basically I'm right. Uh, the Dutch uh, embassy said, what? I mean, what are you talking about? Oh, for, for heaven's sake. I mean, what a crazy idea. Oh, I'm just going to check. And uh, oh, <laughs> oh, yes, we are still at war. Yes. Um, so said Salonium, a guy called Roy Duncan, to whom I owe this story. Uh, and on what dubious authority he did this? Ask me not. Um, Roy Duncan 
invited a guy called Roy Huidekupa, and Dutch listeners can correct me on my pronunciation. That sounds pretty good, though. Uh, yeah, you got to go. You, but the point is, with any language, you just have to kind of go for it, right? Mm. Roy Huidekupa, <laughs> uh, the Dutch ambassador, that is to the UK, not the Silly Isles. Um, he invited him to come on over and sign a belated declaration of peace. Uh, and that was an invitation that Huidekupa seized upon. No doubt, of course, keen to see nations speak peace unto nation and to have a nice uh, trip to a famously picturesque part of my country, long-standing war or no. And that's soon enough, Brian. In 1986, bear in mind, war declared 1651. In 1986, peace was busting out all over between the Netherlands and the Scilly Isles. And as Huida Cooper noted in 1986, the happy resolution of the world's longest continuous conflict must have caused great relief to the Salonians, ending at last the prospect of Dutch <laughs> attack at any moment. Generations living under the cloud of the under Dutch the cloud Navy potentially of, showing of up. Smoking a pancake attack. <laughs> well, that's that's a great story. It it's it's not it, it is amusing, of course, but it's also not potentially without consequence because just to give you two examples, legally. The United States and I think Britain are still at war with North Korea. Uh, the Korean War was only signed in an armistice. It's never been, as far as I know, mm. uh, ended. And, and the same thing was true of Iraq in the early 2000s. And that was actually part of the legal justification for some of our military actions. Some people say it's dubious. Some people don't. But the failure to formally end the war from the 90s. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so if the Dutch get sufficiently annoyed, I don't know. It might be But silly. not now. Not now. They signed a peace treaty oh, with fair, the Salonians. So, what, so tell, not now. tell us a little about uh, the Silly Isles. That's actually how you pronounce it, right? Isles of Silly, Silly Isles. And that, so they have for a while preferred people to call them the Isles of Silly, uh, which is a, a the repeated attempt to avoid it sounding, and this is stating the obvious, like the Silly Isles. Uh, and that's a good example of, in my view, the Streitzand effect, uh, in which people uh, seeking to draw attention away from something inadvertently, but highly predictably, draw right. more attention to the thing. Right. Silly Isles, of course, sounding like they're silly Isles. Uh, and of course, that's so known because of the dulcet toned chartreuse uh, Barbara Streitzand, who... Um, <laughs> whose vexed efforts to have a photographer's picture of her home uh, removed from an online archive where it had almost never been viewed by anyone, uh, which she instructed lawyers to do, yeah. uh, led to the very widespread dissemination of said image of her home and significant legal costs being incurred by her. So yeah. the strikes and effect of the silly aisles is one I enjoy. That's an excellent point. The only slight footnote I would drop is I believe she's a chanteuse, not a chartreuse, although maybe her house is chartreuse. Ah, I don't know. Well, look, she can she can bring a strikes and effect case against my pronunciation if she likes <laughs> and Fair. boost our listenership. Fair. Yeah, no, it's the same thing with banning a book or trying to ban a song, right? Right. Like all right. you do is point a gigantic arrow at it. And in fact, I think there's an argument that if you looked at most lists of banned books throughout history, what that really should be is a must reading list mm. for everybody. Amen. And it often works that way. So the longest war and no casualties though, right? Or were there zero, no casualties and no injuries, uh, but let's do the shortest war in history, yes, please. Uh, which took me longer to research than it 
took to fight, right? So the Anglo-Zanzibar War between Great Britain, my country, if you've uh, not caught that up yet, and the Zanzibar Sultanate um, took place on the 27th of August, 1896. And that is, Brian, not to say between the 27th of August, 1896 and date X, it took place on that day. Uh, And the war lasted somewhere between, and historians may disagree, somewhere between 38 and 45 minutes. Uh, you can think of what you might do in 38 and 45 minutes. I invite your imagination to run wild. Well, apparently some, research a story for one thing. Well, that took much longer than that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, some people can fight a war in that time. Now, for, the, uh, for those who are seeking uh, info, Zanzibar is an island in the Indian Ocean. Today, it's part of Tanzania. Or this is not going to mean anything to you, Brian, but it will mean something to our legions of British uh, listeners. If you're on your gap yard, Tanzania is an island in the Indian Ocean where people go to. Um, Do we it, say mind the gap yard or no? no? We Mind the gap yard is something they might say before they chundered everywhere. Uh, and back then, uh, when this war was fought uh, in 1896, Zanzibar was a country in its own right. Um, the Portuguese had owned it. The Omanis had expelled them from the island at the end of the 18th century. Loosely, uh, the Omanis had controlled it until 1858, uh, when uh, the Zanzibaris declared independence, which, of course, Team GB opportunistically recognised and took on board. Um, Side note, the second sultan of the newly independent Zanzibar was a guy called Bargash bin Said, which is a great name, uh, he was forced by the British with the threat of blockading the island if he refused to begin the process of abolishing the Zanzibari slave trade in 1873. And we've discussed mm. a number of times yeah. in our podcast now how Britain was was trying again and again to abolish the slave trade. And that's why I side note, because I think... Good on you. It, cheers, and it's a... It's a um, an, a proud note for my country. Mm-hmm. Anyway, fast forward in time to the inverted commas war. What happened was this. Sultan Hamad bin Thuwani, uh, who was a friend to the British authorities, died on the 25th of August. The mm. dates matter because the, the war took a single day. Uh, he, that Sultan Hamad died on the 25th. And we wanted Hamoud bin succeed him as Sultan. Um, uh, Hamoud being a loyal slash pliant, slash patsy, depending on your perspective, uh, for the British to succeed him as sultan. Instead, uh, Hamad's nephew and Bagash bin Said's son uh, was announced as sultan. Uh, and Khalid, um, who, that uh, said person, who was suspected of having hastened the death of his uncle. It's Hamlet. Uh, it was uh, very explicitly not favoured by the Brits as taking mm. control. And, and indeed, he'd had a go at becoming Sultan the last time there was a vacancy, two years before that. Mm. And he was stymied by force by the British then. And this time, Khalid was prepared to seize the reins. So there was always some anti-British sentiment in Zanzibar to be stirred up, not least because of the abolition of the valuable slave trade, which had come as some cost to the Zanzibari movers and shakers. So Khalid had that sentiment to play on. But when the British protectorate over Zanzibar had been instituted in 1890, an agreement had been signed which said any candidate wishing to become sultan needs the permission of the British consul. 
and Khalid hadn't got it. And that was the pretext on which uh, the, we, the British, said, uh, you can't uh, become sultan, you can't claim to become sultan, and if you do, there's causes belli. We have uh, yep, cause yep, to go yep, to war. Yep. Now, Seems a little circular, though, right? If Sultan A signs that agreement and he's out of power, then Sultan B candidate. But I mean, they, they weren't signatories to the agreement, the, the new candidates. Well, you you got to figure that you sign on behalf of your country and Sultan A, who's dead, had signed on behalf of the country and that bound Sultan B. At least that was the claim. Fair. Yeah, fair. And so we said, stand your man down leave the palace and with an eye to the main chance figuring he might not have that chance again and with a particularly well-developed gift of misjudging military moments uh, Khalid instead declares himself sultan barricades himself inside the palace. by the way we've been talking about this longer than took the fight the war uh, barricades himself inside the palace sounds the assembly for his men and uh, lets the the uh, deadline for his demanded departure to go by so 27th of august order of battle is this Great Britain, two gunboats, because after all, that's what you need for diplomacy, famously. Yeah. Uh, three cruisers, circa 150 men, uh, 900 uh, men from the British uh, forces, Marines and sailors, and 900 Zanzibari soldiers, soldiers loyal to the British crown. On the other, on the other side, Khalid, circa 2,800 Zanzibari, 700 soldiers loyal to him, the palace guard, several hundred servants from his household, and slaves, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, with training in arms and a bunch of civilians recruited to his banner and swiftly armed by him. They had plenty of small arms. They had some Maxim machine guns with which uh, Britain had uh, conquered a continent uh, or um, visited oppression, depending on mm -hmm. your best perspective. Uh, they had a Gatling gun, one Gatling gun. Uh, they had a 17th century bronze cannon, mm -hmm. uh, which is still on display. Uh, they had two 12-pounder field guns, which were a gift from Wilhelm II of Germany. Uh, they had the Zanzibari Royal Yacht HSS Glasgow, which was the which constituted the entirety of the Zanzibari Navy, and they had some other smaller vessels. So, so, they, so, so Alex, our loyal listeners will know then that they were far better armed than the defenders in Fort Stevenson in Ohio back during the uh, War of 1812, which had one good, cannon. Good throwback, and uh, they were somewhat better armed, to be sure. Good throwback. But the point is they were also better armed than yeah. the British right. and pro-British forces, yeah, yeah. who were plainly outnumbered. But as we have learned in our conversations, and indeed as we learn in um, my book, Lessons from History, uh, when I told the uh, story of the Shannon against the Chesapeake yeah. in the War of 1812, there is a potent combination of purpose, preparation, and aggression uh, which sometimes make the odds a secondary consideration. You know, there's a new name for that phenomenon, don't you? Go ahead. Zelensky. Yeah, amen. And uh, all power to his arm. And cheers uh, to him. Cheers to Zelensky. Um, at 9.02, two minutes past the deadline to clear out of the uh, palace, the British begin a bombardment promptly removing Khalid's artillery, such as it was, from the equation mm. and setting the palace on fire. Uh, and the Glasgow, which fired upon the Royal Navy with a Gatling gun, um, said Gatling gun, by the way, had been gifted to the Sultan by Queen, Queen Victoria in the first place. Right. The Glasgow was sunk. And so were two steam launches, which had fired upon um, a British ship, HMS Thrush. 
British troops march on and seize the palace. Battle and the war cease at 9.46. So the debate is about whether uh, at 9.02 was the right time to, to start the war, 9 o'clock was the right time to start the war, whether the uh, flag being pulled down from the palace at 9.46 was the right time to judge the end, or whether them effectively giving up uh, was the end. Casualties. Khaled's forces suffered about 500 casualties. Oh in 45 minutes some of them were aboard the glasgow they were mostly amongst the thousands of people that he had packed into a wooden castle oh. facing cannon fire which were firing high explosive rounds uh, and amongst the british one petty officer was injured later to recover that's it Wow. So at one injury to 500 casualties, I think a uh, significant differential. I just want to wrap up the story by saying Khaled fled the palace during the bombardment. He took refuge with the German consulates who'd been propping him up uh, throughout this business. And he later went into exile. And then, as has always been planned, the British put Sultan Hamoud into power at the head of a puppet government, which went on with the abolition of slavery. So, yeah. you know, in the arc of history, hooray. Mm -hmm. uh, Khaled's supporters were fined an equal amount to the cost of the shells that had been fired at them. No kidding. <laughs> no, I'm serious. And the British commanders involved in the action in the inverted commas war were showered with honours uh, by both Great Britain and the newly highly supportive Zanzibari government. Yeah, and, no no uh, idiot, that guy. Indeed. The protectorate uh, continued for another 67 years and there were no further um, rebellions. Uh, and by the way, Brian, the um, British commanders on the scene, uh, when ordered to get rid of Khalid for Her Majesty's government, uh, acted ignoring the magnificently unhelpful caveat from Lord Salisbury, which they'd received, Prime Minister at the time, which they received, which said, do not attempt to take any action which you are not certain of being able to accomplish successfully. Mm -hmm. I mean, how the hell are you supposed to go to war? <laughs> do not take any action with which you're, which you're not certain to be able to accomplish successfully. They just said, yeah, all right, then. We're going to give this a go. Hey, look, we were successful. Um, so that's my story of the shortest war in history. Wow. So I want to ask you what the lessons from history are of that war. But I also want to note for our, our listeners that, as I, I believe, neither of these stories are in the first volume of Lessons Correct. Uh, from History. So first of all, you're going to have to wait if you want to read them. But you can also look at Alex's Twitter feed and you'll, you can find them there, Dean History. Um, but since they're not in the book and we have to draw our own lessons, what do you think the lesson was of the shortest war? Let's talk about that first. Um. Sometimes it's not your turn, right? And I think it was Khalid uh, faced, Khalid felt that he um, was entitled to rule over his, as it was then, country uh, in Zanzibar. And uh, sometimes, no matter how righteous you might feel about things, if external factors are, ex are so extremely against you, you have to bow to the inevitable. And um, not just because um you're not going to get your own way but as his story shows yeah several hundred people 
may lose their lives in extremists, and this is an extreme yeah. example, right, in under 45 minutes, uh, if you don't give way. And the point is, in, in that situation, it doesn't matter how self-righteous you feel about your claim to something. And, and actually, I don't think his claim, given that he wanted to continue slavery, was particularly right. righteous at all. Right. But even putting that to one side, it doesn't matter how much you think you have the right to something. If you're going to cost people their lives in the course of pursuing it, maybe the negotiation table or even backing down is best. And the full-throated defeat that he got in the end just demonstrates that. Well, I asked the question because we're going to have a guest on in a couple of weeks. We're going to have another Ukraine episode talking yeah. about the much more uh, contemporary stuff. But but this is this is highly relevant, right? Because right. at the beginning of the war in Ukraine, whether the invasion, the Russian illegal invasion in February, there was a debate online between, you know, respected military veterans and scholars about whether it was irresponsible for Zelensky to order the people of, let's say, Mariupol to defend at all costs. If he knew that the Russian army was so powerful that the, all these lives would be lost, he should have backed down. And then there was a whole school of thought to the opposite. And he's proven, I think, so far that that's not always the right answer. I guess the question is, how do you tell? Yeah, so I have a couple of responses. That's a fair point. I have a couple of responses to that. The first would be that it's the difference between a dispute between claimants, which the Zanzibari conflict was, right. and uh, the conflict between two sovereign states, which is the uh, Moscow-Kiev uh, uh, dispute. Between Russia and Ukraine, that is a a case of an illegal invasion uh, from one sovereign state to another, in which if the Russians stopped fighting, there would be no war. Right. And if the Ukrainians stopped fighting, there would be no Ukraine. Yes. That is very different from the question of one pretender to a throne instead of, let's be honest, another pretender which the british oh, right. preferred right. right so that's just a case of ego management which might yeah. cost several hundred people their lives in the zanzibari example uh in the in the face of overwhelming force which is guaranteeing your independence and trying to stamp out slavery in the zanzibari example as opposed to a 40 million uh citizen independent sovereign country which has been invaded by another country which yes, uh, fancies itself to be uh, entitled to stamp all over it so, uh, so whilst i see the point it's very different so, so one way to, to take away from that would be it's, it's a huge difference between when a ruler is acting in their own self-interest versus when a, uh, an elected official is acting in the interest of their entire country. Well, right. And you've only got to compare uh, what, in my example, was the suffering of uh, some ill-guided uh, Ill followers of Khalid who packed themselves into a fortress facing a cannon, knowing uh, that the British were against them in the course of an attempted palace coup, as opposed to what happened in Ukraine. Because in Ukraine, they have kidnapped tens of thousands of people yeah. and smuggled them eastwards, taken them forcibly into right. Russia and told them to, and we'll never, the, the sad truth about this is because you, you'll never be able properly in the fog of war to recognize or realize who was dead and who is kidnapped and who's missing. Right. They, they seized tens of thousands of people and took them into Russia, some of whom have been allowed to come back, many of whom are still there yep. and will never quite know um, 
who was taken into the Far East of Russia in the course of that conflict. That's a very different proposition. And in the end, Khalid was on a uh, flit, was on a flit of ego in the course of his attempt to resist the British preference of, uh, of, and you can argue, of course, that the Brits had no right to interfere in the Zanzibari um, order of uh, succession, but and you might have some force uh, to that position. But taking arms was in the end about his ego, whereas Zelensky's defending his sovereign country, and we right. can see what happens if they don't prevail, yeah. which is the Russians forcibly removing their citizen by the tens yeah. of thousands and, and taking them to the east. The Russians regard Ukraine as their property. Well, it doesn't exist. Very, it doesn't exist to them. But that, and that's the, that's the right comparison. The Russians regard. Uh, Ukraine as an extension of their own country and they can do what they like with it. Whereas the British, whatever you think of, uh, of the British Empire more generally, were trying to stop slavery in uh, in Zanzibar. And that was the, the most proximate reason for the dispute between the, the claimants to the throne. And that, that was why Khaled had support on the ground. Right. He wanted to continue slavery, right. whereas his opponents did not. Yeah, well, that uh, there's some echoes to the American Civil War there. And also echoing is this theme, I think, that runs a little bit through both stories, which is to what extent is it proper? Let's not get into an international law debate, but to what extent is it morally proper for a third country to interfere in the affairs of another country? I mean, for, for example, right. as you've pointed out before, if the French didn't interfere with the British uh, colonial conflict in America, we probably would be speaking British. Probably would have right lost. Now. Yeah. So well, you kind of speak British already, but <laughs> right, right. Well, we'd be speaking to Queen's English instead of whatever bastardized version we have. Aluminum. Why do you miss out so many consonants? <laughs> anyway, carry. I, I just would re remind you that hospital has an H in front. But let let's talk about the so longest does, war. So does herbs. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. What about the longest war? What do we What do we learn yeah. from that? So the longest war is a fascinating one, and the Silonians have long enjoyed that moment of notoriety. I told a uh, a friend of mine uh, who's from the Isles of Scilly that I was going to tell a story about the Isles of Scilly, and immediately he said, "Is it about the longest war?" <laughs> and um, I, I think that um, these peculiar moments, as long as they're between civilized sovereign nations which are broadly at peace and content with the world it can become a moment of joviality mm. but as your point about career implies and indeed japan has something to say about this too mm -hmm. if you don't reconcile and uh, and draw a line under conflicts uh, that have passed it can matter it yes. can it can really matter. So in my example of the longest war, it's mild. Obviously, it's mildly humorous, but um, sometimes it's for much the best. like yourself. Well, quite, <laughs> uh, but but also much like myself, it's quite uh, suitable to draw a line under it and uh, call an end to things. Well, and this is not in any way irrelevant because at some point, hopefully, uh, the Ukrainians are going to win this unprovoked war. But oh, there will be some kind of a written agreement, right? I mean, Russia is not going to surrender right. to the Ukraine and Ukraine is not going to surrender to Russia. So what that agreement says is critical because as long as Putin is walking this planet, which to be honest, I hope is not much longer, he will have ambitions for that territory. So, so the, the status of war or peace legally will make a huge difference. That's right. Uh, and uh, if I look back to the um, precursor examples to how we recognized and reconciled things, let's say in the Balkans, uh, you know, a United Nations agreement, which say stop right. where you are uh, and negotiate from that frozen conflict uh, position. Um, 
it can be um, highly negative for the incentives that you lay down because it incentivizes you to to crack on and do your best slash worst um, before um, the deadline. But that said, I really hope this terrible conflict in Ukraine finishes uh, very soon and that as much land as is possible is re- returned to our friends in Ukraine. I, realistically, it's not going to uh, sadly include Crimea, but I hope right. it includes as much uh, of the land as possible in the east of uh, Ukraine and the Donbass and Lukansk. And um, in the international community should push for that. And one of the perverse things to have come out of this uh, conflict is the 30-year question about what NATO is for has yeah. basically been answered. And um, we're going to see some of our Scandinavian friends join NATO uh, this year in a way that would have been thought mildly impossible yeah. by everyone, yes, including them. Uh, hitherto, so it's not entirely bad, but at what cost has it been done, Brian? Well, right. I mean, I think at some point I would have never thought we would need to do this until the last couple of weeks, but at some point we should have a show that's dedicated to the lessons from history that illustrate the folly of imperialism, uh, you know, which both of our countries have engaged in over the history for to some degree. But this is what Russia is up to now, right? They, whether you call it a zone of safety or a buffer zone or reuniting the Russian people or whatever, they're trying to reconstitute an empire. And it's the 21st century. Yeah, I know. Uh, the trouble is that we think we've cut them off from the global economy and the global community. And actually what we've done is cut them off from the Western uh, economy and the Western community. And there are plenty of people in this world totally willing to do business with Russia and to build new systems and new communities with them. And we've got to be cognizant of that pragmatically, no matter how much on principle we know that they're in the wrong. Well, one day, I hope, but I don't actually believe it soon, we'll be able to stop talking about the horror and the tragedy of the unprovoked war in Ukraine and start talking about the lessons from that history that we can gain. But today, Alex, is, uh, is not that day. So we'll soldier on. We'll try to help people understand what's going on today with your lessons from history. And uh, we'll see everybody next time. And join us, brother. Join us in New York City, June 6th, June 7th, or 6th, June, 7th, June, however you want to look at it. Cheers. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, You can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Kaur, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.